0: We continue with the opinion of the court in Moore v. Harper, beginning with Part 3 of the opinion. Part 3 The question on the merits is whether the Elections Clause insulates state legislatures from review by state courts for compliance with state law. Since early in our nation's history, courts have recognized their duty to evaluate the constitutionality of legislative acts. We announced our responsibility to review laws that are alleged to violate the federal constitution in Marbury v. Madison, proclaiming that it is emphatically the province and duty of the judicial department to say what the law is. Marbury confronted and rejected the argument that Congress may exceed constitutional limits on the exercise of its authority. Certainly all those who have framed written constitutions, we reasoned, contemplate them as forming the fundamental and paramount law of the nation, and, consequently, the theory of every such government must be that an act of the legislature repugnant to the Constitution, is void. Marbury proclaimed our authority to invalidate laws that violate the Federal Constitution, but it did not fashion this concept out of whole cloth. Before the Constitutional Convention convened in the summer of 1787, a number of state courts had already moved in isolated but important cases to impose restraints on on what the legislatures were enacting as law. Although judicial review emerged cautiously, it matured throughout the founding era. These state court decisions provided a model for James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, and others who would later defend the principle of judicial review. In the 1786 case Trevett v. Whedon, for example, Lawyer James Varnum challenged a Rhode Island statute on the ground that it failed to provide the right to a jury trial. Although Rhode Island lacked a written constitution, Varnum argued that the state nevertheless had a constitution reflecting the basic historical rights of the English. And, he contended, the courts must honor the principles of the constitution in preference to any acts of the General Assembly. Varnum won, to the dismay of the state legislature, which replaced four of the five judges involved. His arguments were published as a pamphlet, which may well have been the most prominent discussion of judicial review at the time of the Philadelphia Constitutional Convention. The North Carolina Supreme Court played its own part in establishing judicial review, In Bayard v. Singleton, the court considered the constitutionality of a 1785 act by the state's General Assembly that prevented British loyalists from challenging property seizures before a jury. The court held the act abrogated and without any effect, for it was clear that the legislature could not pass an act that could by any means repeal or alter the constitution. Otherwise, the legislature would, at the same instant of time, destroy their own existence as a legislature and dissolve the government thereby established. James Iredell, who would later serve as an inaugural justice of this court, penned at the time an open letter to the public expounding a robust concept of judicial review. The power of the assembly, he wrote, is limited and defined by the Constitution. The legislature, after all, is a creature of the Constitution. North Carolina and Rhode Island did not stand alone. All told, state courts in at least seven states invalidated state or local laws under their state constitutions before 1787, which laid the foundation for judicial review. The framers recognized state decisions exercising judicial review at the Constitutional Convention of 1787. On July 17th, James Madison spoke in favor of a federal council of revision that could negate laws passed by the states. He lauded the Rhode Island judges who refused to execute an unconstitutional law, lamenting that the state's legislature then displaced them to substitute others who would be willing instruments of the wicked and arbitrary plans of their masters. A week later, Madison extolled as one of the key virtues of a constitutional system that a law violating a constitution established by the people themselves would be considered by the judges as null and void. Elbridge, Gary, a delegate from Massachusetts, also spoke in favor of judicial review. Known for drawing a contorted legislative district that looked like a salamander, Gary later became the namesake for the gerrymander. At the convention, he noted that in some states, the judges had actually set aside laws as being against the Constitution. Such judicial review, he noted, was met with general approbation. Writings in defense of the proposed Constitution echoed these comments. In the Federalist Papers, Alexander Hamilton maintained that the courts of justice have the duty to declare all acts contrary to the manifest tenor of the Constitution void. This doctrine of judicial review, he also wrote, was equally applicable to most, if not all, the state governments. State cases, debates at the convention, and writings defending the Constitution all advanced the concept of judicial review, and in the years immediately following ratification, courts grew assured of their power to void laws incompatible with constitutional provisions. The idea that the courts may review legislative action was so long and well established by the time we decided Marbury in 1803, that Chief Justice Marshall referred to judicial review as one of the fundamental principles of our society. Part 4. We are asked to decide whether the Elections Clause carves out an exception to this basic principle. We hold that it does not. The Elections Clause does not insulate state legislatures from the ordinary exercise of state judicial review. Section A. We first considered the interplay between state constitutional provisions and a state legislature's exercise of authority under the Elections Clause in Ohio Xrel Davis v. Hildebrandt, 1916. There we examined the application to the Elections Clause of a provision of the Ohio Constitution permitting the state's voters to approve or disapprove by popular vote any law enacted by the General Assembly. In 1915, the Ohio General Assembly drew new congressional districts, which the state's voters then rejected through such a popular referendum. Asked to disregard the referendum, the Ohio Supreme Court refused explaining that the Elections Clause, while conferring the power therein defined upon the various state legislatures, did not preclude subjecting legislative acts under the clause to a popular vote. We unanimously affirmed, rejecting as plainly without substance, the contention that to include the referendum within state legislative power for the purpose of apportionment is repugnant to Section 4 of Article 1, the Elections Clause. Smiley v. Holm decided 16 years after Hildebrandt considered the effect of a governor's veto of a state redistricting plan. Following the 15th Centennial Census in 1930, Minnesota lost one seat in its federal congressional delegation— The state's legislature divided Minnesota's then-nine congressional districts in 1931 and sent its act to the governor for his approval. The governor vetoed the plan pursuant to his authority under the state's constitution, but the Minnesota Secretary of State nevertheless began to implement the legislature's map for upcoming elections. A citizen sued, contending that the legislature's map was a nullity in that after the governor's veto, it was not repassed by the legislature as required by law. The Minnesota Supreme Court disagreed. In its view, the authority so given by the Elections Clause is unrestricted, unlimited, and absolute. The Elections Clause, it held, conferred upon the legislature the exclusive right to redistrict such that its actions were beyond the reach of the judiciary. We unanimously reversed. A state legislature's exercise of authority under the elections clause we held must be in accordance with the method which the state has prescribed for legislative enactments. Nowhere in the federal constitution could we find a provision of an attempt to endow the legislature of the state with power to enact laws in any manner other than that in which the constitution of the state has provided that laws shall be enacted. Smiley relied on founding era provisions, constitutional structure, and historical practice, each of which we found persuasive. Two states at the time of the founding provided a veto power, restrictions that were well-known. Subjecting state legislatures to such a limitation was no more incongruous with the grant of legislative authority to regulate congressional elections than the fact that the Congress, in making its regulations under the same provision, would be subject to the veto power of the president and long and continuous interpretation as evidenced by the established practice in the states, provided further support. We noted that many state constitutions had adopted provisions allowing for executive vetoes, and that the uniform practice has been to provide for congressional districts by the enactment of statutes with the participation of the governor wherever the state constitution provided for such participation. This court recently reinforced the teachings of Hildebrandt and Smiley in a case concerning the constitutionality of an Arizona ballot initiative. Voters amended Arizona's constitution to remove redistricting authority from the Arizona legislature and vest that authority in an independent commission. The Arizona legislature challenged a congressional map adopted by the commission arguing that the Elections Clause precludes resort to an independent commission to accomplish redistricting. A divided court rejected that argument. The majority reasoned that dictionaries of the founding era capaciously defined the word legislature and concluded that the people of Arizona retained the authority to create an alternative legislative process by vesting the lawmaking power of redistricting in an independent commission. The court ruled, in short, that although the elections clause expressly refers to the legislature, it does not preclude a state from vesting congressional redistricting authority in a body other than the elected group of officials who ordinarily exercise lawmaking power. States, the court explained, retain autonomy to establish their own governmental processes. A significant point for present purposes is that the court in Arizona State Legislature, the Arizona Redistricting Commission, recognized that whatever authority was responsible for redistricting, that entity remained subject to constraints set forth in the state constitution. The court embraced the core principle espoused in Hildebrandt and Smiley that redistricting is a legislative function to be performed in accordance with the state's prescriptions for lawmaking, which may include the referendum and the governor's veto. The court dismissed the argument that the Elections Clause divests state constitutions of the power to enforce checks against the exercise of legislative power. Nothing in the Elections Clause instructs, nor has this Court ever held, that a state legislature may prescribe regulations on the time, place, and manner of holding federal elections in defiance of provisions of the state's Constitution. The reasoning we unanimously embraced in Smiley commands our continued respect. A state legislature may not create congressional districts independently of requirements imposed by the state constitution with respect to the enactment of laws. We've come to the end of part of this opinion, but don't worry, next episode will pick up right where this episode left off. Until then, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.